Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Uh, look, it can't all be just uh, bad news. Here's some really great news. Um, we have uh, def- we've defeated global warming. Go us. We did it, everybody. We did it. I feel like I've got the image in my head right now of Kamala Harris waving goodbye and putting her hand you know, over her heart, getting emotional about it. Maybe there's a Venn diagram. I don't know. The Telegraph, the UK Telegraph is where this story comes to us from because for some reason, maybe they just haven't gotten around to covering it yet. They're still taking uh, notes uh, and stenography from Hamas. Uh, but the mainstream media here in America, they haven't gotten to reporting this story. It's a it's about a study that came out of uh, Ohio, St- sorry, the Ohio State University, which shows trees are getting bigger. Trees are getting bigger. Do you know why? Think about it. Think back to the old days of your earth sciences classes before they got all woke and crazy. What did you learn about carbon dioxide? That's what trees breathe, right? That's their food. Plants and trees, they, they love carbon dioxide. So trees are getting bigger, potentially because of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And what does that mean? Well, if the trees are bigger, that means they breathe more. They got more leaves, right? You got more of the photosynthesis occurring, all of that stuff. It's science. And that means they are likely to be helping to mitigate global warming more than climate models suggest. (gasps) A new study from The Ohio State University has found that tree trunk volume in the U.S. is up to 29% bigger than it was 30 years ago, a finding that is likely to be mirrored elsewhere in the world. Trees are known to act as a buffer zone against climate change by pulling in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But the latest research shows just how much they have been bulking up on the extra fuel. Quote, it's well known that when you put a ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it doesn't stay up there forever, said Brent Songen, professor of environmental and resource economics at Ohio State. David Strom at HotAir.com reporting on this says, rarely noted in the stories on carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a key fact. Carbon dioxide is plant food. And it is so powerful a fertilizer that greenhouses generally add the gas to the atmosphere to a level that's about three times the levels outside the greenhouse in order to speed up plant development. Current CO2 levels in the atmosphere are actually at the very low end of what plants can survive. So if it actually goes too much lower in the parts per million or parts per billion, whatever it is, if it goes much lower 
then plants will die. They're, there's not going to be enough CO2 in the atmosphere for them. CO2, uh, CO2 levels three times as much um, if you pump them up in the greenhouses with three times as much, it doubles their plant growth. So they, yeah, they thrive. And then when the plants thrive with this, they're helping to clean the air for us. Isn't that amazing? I feel like this should be bigger news. But nobody in the media apparently is touting the results as good news. And maybe it's because they don't want the good news. Maybe they want people scared. I mean, it seems to be sort of the common theme. Look, I've always said, not always, well, yeah, pretty much. For the last 20-some-odd years, I would always joke about, uh, you know, we're the media. If you're not scared, we're not doing our jobs. There was a hilarious Saturday Night Live skit years and years ago. I want to say Seinfeld was uh, one of the, he was the, the guest host of the episode. And the skit that they did was, uh, it was like an anchor desk, a TV news program. And they kept on just doing the teases. They would never do any full stories. They just kept doing teases. And the teases become, you know, absurdly catastrophic the, the, the longer the skit runs. And everything is like a one-sentence scare headline. You know, details, you know, this common household item could be killing you right this moment. Details at 11. You know, and they just keep promoting all of these terrible catastrophes and risks and threats. But they never tell you what those things are. And they just keep teasing it to get you to tune in later. But that's media. Oh, and look, I get it. People say, oh, I want to hear the good stories. Oh, I like to hear... You know, the positive stories and all that. But when you when you give them those stories, people don't watch. They don't actually consume that the, those types of stories. There's a reason why, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's sex, it's next. There's a reason why that axiom exists. The business model exists. The clickbait exists, right? Because people gravitate towards it. They want to see. They want to read it. They want to hear all the terrible stuff. Anyway, back to um, David Strom at HotAir.com. He says, uh, we often see graphs of CO2 levels in the atmosphere that go back a thousand years or so. And the rise in CO2 from industrialization looks extremely alarming. But when you put it into the climate context of the Earth over millions of years, we turn out to be on the low end, which should surprise nobody. Because the Earth is still working its way out of an ice age. Yeah, we're... Much, uh, much of the temperate regions on the globe were covered in ice. Not just like a little bit of ice. Not like enough ice to shut down Charlotte for a week. I'm talking a mile of ice. I can't even imagine that. Like the southeast covered by one mile thick ice. I think that's not exactly optimal conditions for humans to exist i'm pretty sure <laughs> yeah i mean how big of a, a of a drill do you need if you can do some ice fishing you know my goodness and then you wouldn't even know if you drilled down through all the ice you could end up hitting land co2 has been dramatically higher in the past actually in fact there have been times when the uh, north and south pole actually had thriving ecosystems 
Now, we may not want the Earth to get that warm for optimal living conditions, but I suspect, he says, that most people would rather be near that extreme than the one from just a few thousand years ago, when glaciers covered what are now prime agricultural zones. And human beings almost went extinct. 12,000 years ago, as the Ice Age was past its peak and the glaciers started melting, there was about 1 to 10 million humans on the entire planet. 1 to 10 million humans. Now there's, what, 8 billion? Human population has positively correlated with higher temperatures and population collapses are correlated with lower temperatures. This isn't even controversial. Folks, this, this is, as they say, this is the Fauci and the data. This is the science and the data. So anyway, some good news there. Um, brought to you by the UK Telegraph, a study out of Ohio State University. So if you're interested in looking that up, you're going to have to go to the Telegraph or you're going to have to go to a research site because you're probably not going to see it covered in any of the legacy outlets, unfortunately for you. Uh, but you can listen to it here. That's what I uh, that's what I endeavor to bring to you. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? OK, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at CarolinaReadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at CarolinaReadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out and i got a message here from mark talking about the global warming and the bigger trees and he says with the amount of leaves on my lawn and backyard uh i believe that this science is correct yeah i think so that's definitely yeah just look at the all the leaves obviously proof that the trees are getting bigger yeah that's how science works people you know, one of the things, though, that we really might want to reconsider here is that um, if we if we reverse the global warming and we get we get colder, um, is that going to lead to the deaths of a lot of the aggressive panhandlers? I'm not sure everybody has thought about these impacts. You know, I mean, what will our what will our off ramps and intersections look like? In America, if we don't have the uh, the panhandlers, right? If you, yeah, if you make it too cold, they're 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 going to freeze out there. So they then they're not going to be there. So if you care about the panhandlers, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe drive more and get some more CO2 into the atmosphere, so it can warm the planet a little bit more. So you know areas that are right now cold for, you know, three, four, five months, six months out of the year, they too become warmer. And so people can then panhandle at all of their exit ramps and intersections. Right? It just seems to me to be a little bit short-sighted. You know, you guys are all like, we need to reverse global warming, whatever. And you're not even thinking about, you're not even thinking about 
the panhandlers. Pineville is. Pineville's thinking about panhandlers, aggressive ones. They approved reinstating criminal penalties for aggressive panhandling. They did. Charlotte City Council, yeah, they're not too sure. Not really clear where to go. Do we allow the public pooping and the urinating and the aggressive panhandling? You know, do we allow that and the the people who are um, taking advantage of themselves in front of others? Let's say, um, what do we do with these people? I just, I don't know. City of Charlotte can't figure it out, but the Pineville uh, Town Council, they did. They they reinstated the criminal penalties for the aggressive panhandling. Uh, Christina Balling at the Charlotte Ledger reports, Pineville Police Chief Mike Hudgens submitted a request to urge council members to impose criminal penalties that can be used against panhandlers who are creating a nuisance, delaying traffic, or creating threatening or hostile situations. Officials said panhandlers have been getting more aggressive lately. If a person is panhandling on public streets, medians, or private property in Pineville and does not comply after a verbal warning, officers can charge them with a Class 3 misdemeanor and a maximum $200 fine. People can panhandle on the sidewalks in Pineville because that's recognized as a First Amendment right, according to the town uh, manager. So officers can get involved only if the panhandlers are doing so aggressively, as defined in the updated ordinance. Penalties for many local ordinances across North Carolina expired two years ago when the General Assembly passed a law decriminalizing ordinances in cities and towns unless they decide to make them criminal offenses. So the towns and cities have to decide this on their own. So, right, in Charlotte... You get a verbal warning or a civil citation with a $50 fine, and uh, and that's it. So, yeah. Oh, and uh, Pineville also did a social district in downtown. There you go. Robert, welcome to the program. Hello, Robert. Hey, Pete. Hey. Regarding uh, your correct assertion that the Earth's climate has been ebbing and flowing for eons mm. when you say that you're correct and you're talking about uh, mile thick ice here in the southeast eons ago or whatever you are i'm you probably you may not be aware of it you are treading on very thin ice when you make mm. statements like that that might uh, that mm. might uh come to the attention of someone like al gore mm. or john Kerry or the authors of the Infl- the inflation reduction act which was mostly about climate change uh you are you're treading dangerously uh and you you will be seen as a dangerous person that i well wait a minute i i kind of thought i already was i'm kind of i'm kind of disappointed that i yeah that that i i'm not already how dare you yeah greta thunberg she would be upset uh, with this information as well um i don't know i kind of feel like uh, i feel like i'm on pretty solid footing uh, with a mile thick ice. Yes, you are. But yes, you all. Again, what you're what you're stating cannot be disputed that the, that the Earth's climate has has been ebbing and flowing for eons, regardless of mm-hmm. of the very very recent human activity. But you you that topic is even for a radio talk show host, 
who is who is happily dangerous and who is happily provocative, etc. <laughs> I'm telling you, you are going to put yourself onto people's radar mm. on that topic. I will. I will. Yeah. Well, you know what? I I happily accept the uh, the challenge, Robert. I appreciate the call, sir, and thank you for your your concern. It comes from a good place. It comes from love. I get it. Thank you, Robert. Uh, thank you uh, for the emailed picture, DL, a sign in Chesapeake, Virginia. Says, say no to panhandling. It's okay to say no. Contribute to the solution. Give to local charities. Need help? Housing crisis hotline. And there's a phone number there for Chesapeake. Yeah, like, I remember at one point, um, the Charlotte Center City Partners I think it was, or maybe it was the chamber, one of them, or maybe it was both. I, I forget. Uh, it, it's been like 20 years. But they drew up these little cards that you could carry around with you when walking around in Uptown. Um, and so when people would hit you up for money, you could give them one of these cards. And the card had the addresses for the shelter and, you know, soup kitchens and rescue mission, like all these different services that are available. So, like, if people are coming up and asking for help, here's how you can get help. These are the organizations. And by the way, like, that's why I've donated money to these causes for years is, like, that's how you help people is you get them into the into the services. It's not giving them some money on the street corner that they will then use to go feed their addictions. That doesn't get them off the corner. In San Diego... Homeless camps are, quote, hubs of drug abuse where hepatitis A is now spreading. In Sacramento, homeless campers looking for water have dug into and damaged the levees that protect the California state capital from flooding. Puts the entire city at risk. In Apache Junction, Arizona, the parks are, quote, overwhelmed by homeless people who relieve themselves in youth baseball dugouts and leave behind dirty needles and drug paraphernalia. Homeless campers in Medford, Oregon, have littered Bear Creek, a tributary of the Rogue River, with human waste, coolant, and other toxic materials. And they've used tarps to build makeshift dams to illegally trap salmon and other protected fish. Like, you really want to get the government to crack down on this problem? Yeah. Mess with protected species. Oh, my gosh. One homeless camp in Oregon became a chop shop to process stolen catalytic converters. Fires in homeless camps are on the rise. So are drug overdose deaths. Businesses located near camps are losing customers. In some cases, government workers need police escorts to do their jobs on public land filled with sprawling homeless camps. Ryan Mills, writing at National Review, reports, quote, those are just some of the claims made in more than two dozen amicus briefs, or amicus briefs if you prefer, that were filed last month urging the Supreme Court to overturn a recent Ninth Circuit ruling which drastically limited the ability of local governments to enforce camping bans on many homeless people. The briefs represent the perspective of hundreds of groups and people, uh, city leaders, politicians, civic groups, business organizations, downtown residents, law enforcement leaders, state attorneys general, conservative think tankers, 
all united by their belief that the Ninth Circuit's ruling last year in Johnson v. Grants Pass has hamstrung cities and allowed for the proliferation of squalid and dangerous homeless encampments in Western communities, because this is the Ninth Circus Court of Appeals. This ruling in, in 22 is the second of two decisions that came out of that court that critics say have supercharged the proliferation of homeless camps out West. It came on the heels of a, a ruling in 2018 called Martin versus Boise, in which the uh, the court held that enforcing criminal anti-camping restrictions on people who don't have, quote, access to adequate temporary shelter is a violation of the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. That's what the Ninth Circuit ruled in 2018. That a homeless person doesn't have access to adequate temporary shelter, and so banning them under an anti-camping restriction is cruel and unusual punishment. Just weeks after the Martin ruling, three homeless residents sued the city of Grants Pass. And the Ninth Circuit ruled in their favor. That extends the original ruling from 2018, the Martin versus Boise case. The Grants Pass case extends the Martin ruling now to include the prohibition on issuing civil citations and affirming a class-wide injunction against Grants Pass enforcement of its anti-camping ordinance. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of the society the way it looks when there's no more public property where government basically gets rid of ownership of public lands, public property because it can no longer keep them clean so it has to turn everything over to the private sector i mean don't threaten me with a good time but like that that actually could happen think of it this way too right you've got um these bans on panhandling and and uh and uh uh, pan or uh, uh camping i guess on sidewalks right and uh, this is, uh, for example, pretty acute in front of uh, businesses in a downtown area or in front of uh, ATMs, right? Nobody wants to go up and use the ATM if there's, you know, somebody standing there waiting on you to take out cash. You're just not going to go take out the cash because now you can't even lie to the panhandler and say, ah, I don't have any cash on me, you know, because they just saw you take out cash. Or they could just like, you know, bonk you on the head and take your cash, right? So people just don't put themselves in that situation. They just won't draw out the cash, or they won't go into the business. They'll avoid the the areas. So what what then does this benefit? Well, yes, people ordering stuff from their homes and just having it all delivered to them. But also, I'm thinking malls. Hmm? Malls. Is it possible? Because you can, if malls actually, you know, were to get serious about uh, about making a play here for uh, for the business, like could they not juxtapose like their safety with the safety of a downtown area? You could make the case like we're private property. You're not going to get hit up with panhandlers. We're going to take crime seriously, so people aren't coming and just looting all of the stores all the time, right? Like you can you can position malls as a safer 
downtown-like environment. I'm just spitballing here. No bad ideas under the cone of creativity, as I always say. Ed Johnson, the director of litigation at the Oregon Law Center, which represents the homeless plaintiffs in the Grants Pass case, told Oregon Public Broadcasting that he's happy with the Ninth Circuit's rulings limiting the enforcement of these camping bans, which he said exacerbate problems. He says allowing cities and counties discretion to criminalize their homeless citizens will not reduce the number of people who are forced to live outside. It'll increase the number because criminalization destabilizes people who are living outside. And it makes it harder for them to connect with jobs and connect with housing that they need in order to get inside. But the hundreds of people and groups who have filed and signed on to the more than two dozen amicus briefs argue that the rulings have led to a situation that has reached crisis level in several cities. Yeah, it's 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 spreading. The Goldwater Institute in Arizona argues in an amicus brief in this uh, in this grants pass case arguing that in Arizona, government officials have used the Ninth Circuit rulings and the court's bizarre notion of involuntariness as an opportunity to shrug off their responsibilities to enforce laws that are wholesome and necessary for the public good. The Martin theory of involuntariness is irrational, the Goldwater Institute brief says, because people who choose to live indefinitely on the streets can choose alternatives They can choose to obtain shelter, to seek employment, or to take advantage of the social, medical, or psychological services necessary to bring themselves into compliance with the law. Even Gavin Newsom. Even Gavin Newsom is on board with this. This is like the coalition of people that uh, and organizations from left and right is growing against these types of rulings and this lack of enforcement. Newsom's brief calls the homeless crisis, quote, one of our uh, one of our nation's most vexing problems. But he doesn't take issue with the court's narrow rule, which protects people with nowhere else to go from criminal prosecution. But, quote, lower courts have interpreted Martin, the Martin decision from 2018, far more broadly than that and have paralyzed communities. These courts have stretched Martin's reasonable limit into an insurmountable roadblock, preventing cities and towns from imposing common sense time and place restrictions to keep streets safe and to move those experiencing uh, homelessness into shelter. City and the city and the county of uh, San Francisco. Mayor London Breed also on board. Grants Pass is in Oregon. It's a little town in Oregon. It's got like 40,000 people. But it's got hundreds of homeless there now. A local gospel rescue mission. That's what it's called, gospel rescue mission. They had 138 beds, but they don't count as a public shelter. You know why? They have sobriety requirements. So you can't show up drunk there or high. You got to be sober. You have to stay sober while you're at the shelter. And so that doesn't count. Because of that and the court's injunction, the city's homeless residents have carte blanche to set up camps in 15 of the 16 city parks because there's no other shelter for them to go to because Grants Pass is only 40,000 people. And they have a shelter, 
but it has a sobriety requirement. And so it doesn't count. And so that means all the city's parks are available. But Grants Pass, now they've got to raise what? They're going to have to raise taxes to pay for construction of a government-operated shelter, right? In order to be able to get the people out of their parks. So why even have the parks? Sell the land. Sell the land, develop it, turn it into tax revenue, and use that to pay for a shelter. Because right? these are the choices now that cities are going to have to start making, right? If you have any city park and no shelter, then the city park becomes a homeless camp. That's the standard now uh, out west, thanks to these two rulings at the Ninth Circuit. Well, I should say these two cases. One's a ruling, one is, um, one is being argued. Grants pass. Well, no, it, I, yeah, I take it back because it went to the uh, yeah, it went to the Ninth Circuit. Let me see here. Mm. Yeah, this is now at the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Grants Pass is a lower-income former lumber town. Um, they got, like, basically one corporate headquarters of Dutch Brothers Coffee, <laughs> right? Um, the uh, city attorney is Augustus Agu, and Augustus Agu says that they can't afford to keep massive shelters going year over year. He also said he believes that those lawyers targeted grants passed because the city doesn't have a lot of legal resources. They sought it out. These, the, so there was obviously, the, like, you have the homeless population, sorry, the people experiencing temporary unsheltered houselessness, I think, is what it's now. But you have those, you, you have those people... But then you have the, what, nonprofits? You've got leftist organizations. You've got, you got lawyers that pushed the issue that, what, paid for them to relocate to Grants Pass? How did all of these hundreds of homeless people show up at that town? Why that town? You know, obviously, like, word didn't go out that they've got great services and benefits. It's a tiny town of 40,000. They don't. So why did all these people just show up there? Right, to make the legal case, literally to prompt a lawsuit in order to change law. This is lawfare, right? This is how the left utilizes the courts to do end runs around legislation, to get lawyers with wardrobe changes to make up stuff, to make up laws, to make up rules that they cannot otherwise get approved through a normal legislative process because most people would not support it. So it's at the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll be tracking that one. This is the Grants Pass case at the U.S. Supreme Court. We shall see. We'll see what happens. Oh, we're also going to see what happens with Trisha Cotham. She's running for re-election. Different district number, though. Same kind of area. Details in a minute. (laughs) 